energy. How does anybody live and drive in Boston every single day? This guy stopped in the middle of the road with his hazard lights on. This guy won't yield. That guy won't let you go. That guy passes in front of you. That guy goes three lanes of traffic all in one shot. How does anybody do this? The passion. Look, if the Red Sox aren't going to play Yoshida Endeavors as they're about to get swept, then we might as well just give up and go home. The opinions on all your favorite teams. I'm glad that Mac Jones looks better. That's really important. He needs to look better. But if it were a video game, he'd still have an overall rating of 76, and that ain't cutting it. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEB AM, FM, and WDEBradio.com. What's up, everybody? A very happy Tuesday here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Full show tonight, all 90 minutes. We're up right until 7 o'clock. Red Sox baseball takes center stage then, hoping for a better outcome than last night. Sox beaten by the Astros yesterday, 9-4. Our coverage begins tonight at 7-10. First pitch is 8-10. Danny and I are efforting still a woman by the name of Jess Kazumi for today's show you may not know her name we've never spoken to her before but we're doing our best to get her on today hopefully around 6 30 i think we're getting close to making that happen it's an interview if we can get her you're going to want to hear and we'll keep you posted as we move through we got a lot of stuff on the patriots today as well some interesting comments from mac jones on uh, wei yesterday you can get in on the text line as always 802-585-3026 again that's 802-585-3026 danny lego five Four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts of the Brady Farkas Show were brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. Hey, Boston Red Sox. One word comes to mind when I think of last night. That one word, 9-4 loss to the Red Sox, the one word that comes to my mind, unacceptable. That's the only word. I thought about a couple of, I thought about a couple of words that could describe the Red Sox last night, but when I boil it down to one, the one word I come to is unacceptable. The Red Sox last night blew a golden opportunity. We told you. Going into yesterday, the Red Sox had a chance to start taking matters into their own hands. They could start trying to catch Houston rather than worrying about catching Seattle, and the Red Sox last night blew it. It was just a disgusting performance and an unacceptable performance last night. The Red Sox got up 3 nothing in the first inning. When you get up 3 nothing in the first inning, those are games you need to win. The Red Sox did everything we asked them to do in the top of the first inning. Hey, the Astros aren't starting Justin Verlander. Get on the starter. Hey, the Astros used their entire bullpen practically in the Sunday game against the Mariners where their starter only went two and two and two-thirds innings. Get to the starter. Get them out early. Get a lead. This team's lost three straight games. Put them out of their misery early last night. The Red Sox did all of that in the top half of the first inning and then immediately gave it back and rolled over unacceptable three nothing lead you fail to produce a shutdown inning unacceptable come back out the next inning give up three and your three nothing lead turns into a four three deficit unacceptable when you get up three nothing 
on the road against a team who has lost three consecutive games and has just had their clock cleaned by their division rival for three games and is licking their wounds. When you get up 3 nothing against that team, you need to close it out, and the Red Sox failed to do it in every sense of the word. Alex Cora called it one of the sloppiest games the Red Sox have had in a while. He's absolutely right. Sloppy, inexcusable. Catcher's interference in the first inning from Reese McGuire. Devers falls down and then makes a throwing error, pulling a Rios up the bag at second. Uh, another ball that Devers could have fielded. Could, could have fielded. Red Sox go three for 18 with runners in scoring position. They get 11 men left on base. It doesn't matter what it was. Paxton couldn't throw enough strikes with his off-speed stuff. The defense was shoddy. The offense couldn't get the timely hit. No matter what part of this we're talking about, the Red Sox failed. They had chances to add on. They had chances to get back in it, and they failed at all of them. Bases loaded, nobody out. They end up with one run. Completely disappointing. Oh, but Brady, Brady, it's just one game. There's a lot of games in a season, 162 of them. You're going to have a stinker every once in a while. No, not anymore. We're not saying that anymore. Yeah, it's a long season. Yes, at 162, you're going to have some stinkers. You're allowed to have some clunkers. But you know what? When you've put yourself in a hole like the Red Sox have, when you've put yourself three games back with just under 40 to play, now four back, you don't get mulligans. You don't get chances you, you, you don't get extra chances. You have to capitalize on what's in front of you. The Atlanta Braves are 80 and 44. If they did what the Red Sox did last night, hey, no big deal. They're still cruising. The Red Sox aren't in that mode. Okay. When you start losing two of three to the Rockies earlier in the season, and when you get swept by the Pirates, and you're getting your clock cleaned by every team in the National League Central, and you're swept by the Cardinals, when that happens to you early in the season, the end of the season becomes magnified. You don't get one-offs. You don't get clunkers. You don't get stinkers. You have to win when you have a chance to win and you have to win against the teams you're directly chasing and the Red Sox had that chance yesterday and they blew it. This is not one of 162. This is one of less than 40. Okay? It's one of less than 40. You want to make the playoffs? Playoff teams, good teams, play cleaner baseball than the Red Sox did last night. It's that simple. Last night was the perfect storm for the Red Sox to take advantage of, and they failed. You had the momentum. You had won three straight and were coming off a sweep. They were on their heels. The Astros held a team meeting after their loss on Sunday to the Mariners. They had lost three straight. They had just gotten swept. You got up 3 nothing. You had a chance to get their starter out of the game when they have a thin bullpen, and instead Christian Javier gets to hang around and go five innings and get the victory. You can't have that. We're up 3 nothing in the first, and Duvall's hit a three-run homer. You can't allow the starter to come back and go five innings and get the win and reset the bullpen a bit. And tonight, you've got Verlander. Okay, You needed to win last night so that you didn't have to win tonight. If you're going to lose a game in this series, you're going to bank on it being the one that Verlander pitches. you got to take advantage of yesterday. And the Red Sox didn't. And tonight... Not only are you facing Verlander, you're going to get Hauk pitching for you, who we haven't seen in two months, who I have no idea how he's going to be, how deep into a game he's going to go, how he's going to feel physically and mentally. You had your chance, 
and you blew it last night. 802-585-3026. People wanted a playoff race. People wanted a playoff race. People wanted the Red Sox to be in it at the end. This is what it sounds like when the Red Sox are in it at the end. I'm ramping up my pressure. I'm ramping up my expectations because that's what it takes. I wouldn't be sounding like this in April. I wouldn't be sounding like this in June. And I wouldn't be sounding like this if the Red Sox were 18 games out. But they're not. They're three back coming into last night. And now, because of an inexcusable performance, unacceptable performance, they're four back. They're four and a half back of Houston. They can't catch the Astros out of this series. They're probably looking at a loss tonight when Verlander pitches, or at least that's what the odds would tell you if you went to Vegas. So this is this is no longer good. And, like, this this series could break the Red Sox season. I told you a couple weeks ago that, that the Toronto series could end their season. This also could end their season. Let me just play – let's just play a, a little game here for a second. Let's say – Seattle takes two of three from Chicago. That's who they're playing right now. White Sox are bad. Let's say Seattle takes two of three. So you're going to drop more games to them. Let's say you lose three of four to Houston. You're going to drop more games to them. You could be five back of Seattle. You could be six and a half back of Houston or five and a half back of Houston. And you could be done with 30, 35 games to play. And that's not even to mention what Toronto does who's directly in front of you. Right? When you're trying to leapfrog teams, you've got to take advantage. And last night, the Red Sox did. After the game, Danny Alex Cora, as I said, he said it was one of the uh, sloppiest games that the Red Sox have had in a while. We're going to make plays. We're going to make pitches. And probably one of the sloppiest games in the last few weeks. You know? But that's going to happen. You know, We played so good over the weekend, and uh, we've been so good for a while here. Um, you know, We'll take a mulligan and be ready for tomorrow. Yeah, that, that's what the manager should say. The manager doesn't need to ramp up pressure. The manager can play the long game because he's with these guys 180 games a year. I don't have to. 180 days a year, I don't have to. I, there are no mulligans. Not now. Not when you're the team doing the chasing. Okay, The Orioles, they get a mulligan. The Rays, they can get a mulligan. The, uh, the, the Braves, they get mulligans. The Dodgers get mulligans. You earn your mulligans. You make your own breaks. You make your own opportunities. And when the Red Sox had chances early in the year to do that, to give themselves a cushion, they were getting swept by the Pirates back in April. They were getting swept by the Cardinals at Mother's Day. They are getting beaten by the Reds before the Reds were good two out of three. They are getting beaten by the Rockies two out of three. And they are getting beaten by, uh, let me see here, who else do they get inexplicably beaten by? It will come to me here. There are others. Right, like there are others. So when the Red Sox had chances to buy themselves mulligans and freebies at the end of the year, back in the beginning, they weren't able to do that. Um, Paxton, after the game, talked about his problem. Uh, I feel like they're hunting fastballs. Um, you know, I wasn't able to throw my breaking ball for strikes consistently tonight, so I think they uh, were keying off the fastball, and I left some in the middle of the plate, and they did damage. It's really hard to be a one-pitch pitcher against the Houston Astros. It's really hard to be a guy who is reliant on your fastball because he can't get everything else going, right? When when Paxton's working really good, he's 95 in, he's got the little cutter, he's got the slider and the curveball that kind of break in back foot to a righty. When he's going great, that's what he looks like. And when he thinks he's fastball dependent, like he just told you right there, that they're hunting it. And by the way, I couldn't get anything else over. It's a really tough combination to be. 
though they had lost three games in a row, you look at the first four batters in the Houston Astros lineup, and I don't know how many teams have better than that. The Braves have the best lineup on the planet. So probably them when they're healthy. Beyond that, though, Altuve is an MVP, Alvarez, Bregman, and Tucker. I mean, we're talking about four all-stars there. We're talking about four guys who could hit 35 home runs in a season. They're not a better foursome than that outside of the Atlanta Braves, probably. And when you are forced to bring fastballs into them, you saw what happened, right? Last night, Alvarez gets the ball, hits the ball in the gap. That brings in two. I think that made it 4-3 Astros at the time. Bregman's able to hook a ball right down the line over a diving Devers. Not an easy team to be pitching a hot from behind against and not an easy team to be forced to live with the fastball against because they can hunt it and they can hit it. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. You can get in on the text line, 802-585-3026. We will come back. Mac Jones said something interesting yesterday. He was on WEI in Boston. The Patriots quarterback says he wants to hit the wayback machine. I'll tell you why that's a good idea in theory, but it won't come to fruition. I'll tell you what I mean next on DEV. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Peter over in Wilson says, awesome opening rant. Red Sox needed that W yesterday going up against Justin Verlander tonight. Yeah, they did, and no, they didn't get it. It's a very, very disappointing performance last night for the Red Sox after the uh, top of the first inning, right? Top of the first inning was great with the Duvall three-run homer. They weren't able to get anything going after that. Um, left a ton of runners on base. 11 guys left on base, 3 for 18 with runners in scoring position. Trevor Story looks lost right out. He had a good week, good four or five games. He looks lost again at the plate, and um team just wasn't able to get it done yesterday. So, And, by the way, Jaron Duran's on the injured list now. We'll get to that in the 6 o'clock hour. But I, I want to get to this here. Interesting comments from Patriots quarterback Mac Jones. And Mac Jones... Every Monday is on WEEI in Boston, and uh, those conversations started yesterday. And Mac apparently, and I had not heard this, Mac apparently has made reference this offseason to wanting to get back to being Alabama Mac. He wants to get back to being Alabama Mac. He was asked yesterday, what does that mean exactly? Here's what Mac Jones said to WEEI about being Alabama Mac. Yeah, I think just uh, continuing to work hard and be myself and going out there and distributing the ball. Like, we have great playmakers here, um, and I feel like I did my best at Alabama when I just got the ball to other people and let them make plays. So that's what it all comes down to. It's pretty simple. Just be a point guard and um, let them go make all the plays and score the touchdowns and then celebrate with the offensive line. You know, (laughs) that's what it's all about for me is everybody coming together and, um, enjoying your success, you know, that's a big part of it. It's hard to score in this league, and you want to score as many times as you can. So Mac talks about wanting to be Alabama Mac. He wants to be a point guard. He wants to be a distributor. He wants to just put the ball in his playmaker's hands like he did at Bama. I think that answer is noble, right? Like, I think, like, I think it's, and I think it makes sense, right? Think about it like a computer. Your computer was working fine when it was brand new. Six months later, it goes on the fritz. You do a factory reset back to a point where it worked perfectly, right? You reboot the computer, you reset the computer back to a point where you know it worked. That's what Matt Jones is trying to do. He's trying to reset his mind 
back to a point where he knew everything worked, and that was when he was at Alabama. I think that that's a noble thing. He talks about wanting to play like he did in college when he played well, when he was a Heisman Trophy finalist, playing free, playing loose, being a point guard, letting players make plays and not feeling like you have to do too much. I have no problem with Mac feeling that way. I have no problem with Mac saying that. Here is the problem, Danny. It's not going to work. It's not going to work, and I just want Mac Jones to know that, and I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news because I totally get where Mac's coming from, but what's the old Mike Tyson line? Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Same plan applies here. Okay, Mike Tyson, Danny, you're too young to remember this, but Tyson, best boxer in the world at the time, was asked, like, oh, so-and-so's got a plan for you, and Tyson just said, yeah, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Mac's plan is to be Alabama Mac, and I'm telling you, it's not going to work because he's going to get punched in the mouth. Mac Jones at Alabama was living in a different world. He was in fantasy land compared to what he's got in New England. At Alabama, when he could be Alabama Mac, he had multiple NFL starters on his offensive line. He had multiple first-round draft picks as his wide receivers. We're talking about Jalen Waddell and Devontae Smith, who won the Heisman. Elite running back talent. Guys that are just bigger, faster, stronger than everybody they played against. I could be Alabama Mac too under that situation. I don't see, Danny, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't see an offensive line that the Patriots have that's light years above everybody else like he had at Alabama. Do you see that? No. Okay. I could be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't see the Patriots. I do not think they have two first-round wide receivers on their roster. Do you think they have two first-round wide receivers? Am I missing that? Not seeing them. Okay. They don't have any Heisman Trophy winners in their offense, do they? No. Yeah, the answer to that would be no. The answer to all of these questions is no. So, Mac Jones, it's noble that you want to reset and go back to how you were at Bama. It really is. And I'm not actually, for all the things I've knocked Mac Jones about this offseason, this isn't one of them. I get why he's doing this. The power of belief, the power of positive thinking, the power of clearing the slate, of resetting the mind, of mental fortitude, all of it makes total sense to me. I'm an advocate for all of it. And if I were him, I'd probably want to do it also. I'd want a clean start. Let me, hey, let me erase last year from my brain. Let me go back to a point where I knew everything was great. That was when I was in Alabama. That said, way different situation. Danny loves to play the game on Twitter when, like, when a team gets eliminated, like, if the Celtics lose and, like, throw an old Celtic out there, like, and he'll, like, Danny will text me after the Celtics lose and go, yeah, well, uh, Dana Barrows ain't walking through that door to save the day. Like, okay, Devontae Smith ain't walking through the door for Mac Jones. Okay, uh, uh, Jalen Waddle. Jalen Waddle ain't walking through the door for Mac Jones here. Okay, he's got Devontae Parker, Juju Smith Schuster, a, a, Broken down Ezekiel Elliott, who's helpful in some spots, but not going to able to help carry the load. So Mac is going to get hit in the mouth. The line is going to get him hit. The playmakers that he talks about are not going to be doing what his guys at Bama did. So just understand that. He wants to sit back and let playmakers play. It's going to be really hard in New England in comparison to what he had at Alabama. He's got wide receivers that can't separate and a line that can't protect. The line continue, continues to be problematic. Danny, do we have the Ted Johnson cut from uh, the other day? We do, right? We do. Okay. Ted Johnson, former Patriots linebacker, was actually talking about 
one of the good things that he saw in the Patriots game on Saturday night. He, like I, liked the Patriots using the run-pass option in the red zone. But he said the line continues to be the Achilles heel on this team. That was an RPO. RPO, baby. That's Phil and I have been asking for these guys to, Mac Jones, he can do more RPOs. You saw that. You saw DeMario Douglas explode a little bit. You, you, you could see, uh, you know, you could see some things that they were doing that were like, okay, they got, they got something figured out. And then the offensive line who is, is you talk about the Achilles heel for this team. It is going to be their undoing is this offensive line. You can't be Alabama Mac. Like you just can't be Alabama Mac. Like, and think about it too, right? Like, It'd be like if Jason Tatum said, yeah, I want to get back to being Duke Jason Tatum. But you're not going to be Duke Jason Tatum. You don't have four All-Americans playing alongside you going up against Elon on a Tuesday night where you can win 94-60 to and it's not even competitive. You can't be that guy anymore. Now, Patrick Mahomes can make it look like he made it look at Texas Tech because he's that good. Joe Burrow can make it look like he did at LSU because he's that good. Mac Jones isn't that good. Mac Jones' players aren't that good. So have that belief all you want, but just understand that everybody's got a everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Um, let's see. Uh, Ralph says, the show is today. 2020 hindsight is no good. Chalk it up to life lessons and move forward. That's what he's saying about Mac Jones. Like, he shouldn't want to look back at, at Alabama Mac. He should just want to move forward. Um, That's fair. I think that's fair. I'm not, again, I'm not going to criticize Mac for this. I've criticized Mac enough. Um, I'm not going to criticize him for this. But I do think, you know, you just have to figure out, okay, how can we get the most out of this team? And that's ultimately Bill O'Brien's job to figure out and how Mac Jones can be a part of that. That's true. It's not Mac's job to figure out how to use all the pieces. But Mac is just a part of that, and I think he just needs to understand he's operating within this system right now with this team, and he can't go back to what it once was. Um, all right, there's uh, something else Patriots-wise I want to get to, and I think we got time for this. This is a little bit tougher to explain on radio, but I, I want to do it anyways. So yesterday we had on Jarrett Bailey of USA Today, and I asked him, I said, Jarrett, how many – teams in the AFC are the Patriots definitively better than, and he could only come up with two. He thought they were definitively better than the Colts, and he thought they were definitively better than the Raiders. He didn't even think they were definitively better than Houston. I do, but he didn't. So kind of in concert with that, yesterday I found this. Colin Coward of Fox Sports Radio did what he called a little little segment called, How Close Are You to the Super Bowl End Zone? And he did it for the AFC team. So basically was like, how close are you to winning a Super Bowl? And like the Chiefs, they're right there, right? They're on the goal line. So the Bengals are on the two-yard line. He had, you know, Jacksonville he thought was at the five. Like he thinks they're ready to take a huge step. So he did this for the Patriots, or he did this for every AFC team. And he's like, okay, this team's at the five, this team's at the ten, this team's at the twenty. He had the Colts at their own twenty-five. That was the furthest odds. Um, that was the furthest odds away from the Super Bowl. So eventually he got to the Patriots. And, Danny, we asked Jared Bailey how many teams are the Patriots better than. He came up with two. Cowherd says they are this far away from getting to the Super Bowl end zone. I think with Tennessee, they're at the 50. I think they're out of field goal range. They did hire a legitimate coordinator. But let's be honest, since Brady left, you know what their record is? 25 and 25. 
They don't have enough juice. Tennessee and New England are well coached. They just don't have enough juice. So Colin has them better than Indy, Houston, the Raiders, and then tied with Tennessee. So if you're asking yourself, what do people think about the Patriots or how good are the Patriots going to be this year, understand that we are hearing more and more people think that they are a bottom team in the AFC or a bottom fourth team in the AFC. There's a lot of people out there that think the Patriots are between 12th and 16th in the conference. And I can't fully argue with those people. I think the Patriots right now are at best – seventh in the conference and that requires everything to go their way requires Deshaun Watson to not look that good requires Miami to or Aaron Rodgers or Miami one of them to implode one requires someone to deal with injuries requires Kenny Pickett to not be as exciting as he appears to be requires Russ to be bad requires Justin Herbert to be or the Chargers to continue to shoot themselves in the foot the Patriots are an average team with a lot of people thinking they are below average to downright bad that's where they're at right now so i say though they're between seven and ten wins again ten is at the extreme high end seven is at the low end but if they win seven games they're going to be a team that finishes 12th or 13th in the conference i think they're better than houston i think they're better than indy they might be better than cleveland they might be better than denver they might be better than vegas but they're better than all those teams they were talking about they're obviously getting into like the ninth and tenth range if they're not they're in that 12 to 13th range where Colin has them and where Jared Bailey has them. We've got more on the Patriots coming. Uh, we'll get to them in the 6 o'clock hour. But Red Sox also have some news. They put Jaron Duran on the injured list. We'll talk about what it means for him. We'll talk about what it means for the rest of the roster as we get ready for game two of the series tonight against Houston. And also Tanner Houck takes the mound again. What exactly are we looking for from him? What exactly are we expecting from him? We'll talk about all of it and – I think Danny and I have finally locked it down to get that guest we want. We'll tell you a little bit about Jess Kazumi, who she is, and why we want to talk to her. We'll do that in the 6 o'clock hour as well. You are listening to the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com, always streaming on the free WDEV radio app. I had that so timed out perfectly, and then I realized I was 20 seconds off. So once again... Jaron Duran on the injured list. What does it mean for him? What does it mean for the Sox? There is one side benefit to it. I don't want to see anybody hurt, but there is one side benefit to not having Duran around for a little while. I'll tell you what that is and what we're expecting from Tanner Howe tonight. Red Sox Astros game two of the series. Now we can break on DEV. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. We'll get to the Red Sox here in a minute. Danny and I have the Little League World Series on, as usual, uh, in the studio right now. And, Danny, you know what I've realized recently? That, that? That a team from Vermont actually has a chance to get to Williamsport now. And, I look, a team from Vermont has never been to the Little League World Series, as far as I know. I, I don't believe that's ever happened. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe that's ever happened. Uh, and I've never really felt like Vermont had a chance to get to the Little League World Series. Vermont now has a chance because Little League has changed up the regions um, that are represented at the Little League World Series. And they've added 
regions to the League World Series. And it actually bothers me because it goes against everything I grew up watching and grew up playing. But nonetheless, if you're looking for more ways to get more kids to the Little League World Series, then it's good to have more regions, right? So there used to be, Danny, it used to be 16 teams, used to be eight U.S. teams and eight international teams. Now it's 20 teams, and there's 10 U.S. teams and 10 international teams. So they have added two regions to the Little League World Series qualification. And what they've done is they have split up New England, and they have split up, well, they've split up what used to be New England and used to be, so, all right, let me back up. When I was playing and when I was watching, we used to have the New England region, which was like Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. And then there was the Mid-Atlantic region, which was New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, and Maryland, I think. Like, it was probably the, I might be missing one in there, but, like, by and large, that's what it was. What they have done now is they have split all of that into three regions, and they have invented this, what they call the metro region. So Vermont no longer has Rhode Island in its region. And I actually think that, like, I always think of Massachusetts as being the New England power, but Rhode Island has been to the Little League World Series a number of times, right? Rhode Island is the team, is a team that is at the Little League World Series this year. So Rhode Island is out of the region that Vermont competes in. So that, that, so Rhode Island is now in a separate region. So that's how we ended up with the team from Maine in the Little League World Series this year, because they were, they were only dealing with Maine and Vermont and Massachusetts, and that's it. Like, that, that was all for the New England teams. So Vermont now has an easier chance. I still imagine that Massachusetts will will likely dominate it over the future, but you take out Rhode Island, you take out Connecticut, Danny, there's a chance for Vermont to get into the Little League World Series. So you're saying there's a chance. I'm saying there's a chance, absolutely. And uh, the other one they invented was uh, the Mountain Region, which I have less of a problem with because – that allowed the team from Nevada to get there, and without that, we'd end up with like a bunch of like everybody was just grouped in the West before, and it was just always a team from California. Like I couldn't tell you the, the time I ever saw a team that wasn't, uh, you know, like we always there's usually Hawaii or California, and they're like I can't tell you ever seeing Arizona there. I can't ever tell you seeing Utah there. I can't ever tell you seeing Nevada there, New Mexico. But now you have this mountain region, which allows some of those teams a chance to get in. That's how we ended up with Nevada in it. But, yes, the Little League World Series, we very well could get a team from Vermont in in the future because we have the new invented region of the metro region, which has allowed uh, Rhode Island and Connecticut to get out of New England. So there you go. When I was playing, and I played in Cal Ripken, Danny, which is different than Little League. Did you play Little League? I did. Not Cal okay. Ripken, though. I don't know what that is. Yeah, so it really just – depends on where you're from it's not like in like in new york there is little league don't get me wrong but it all depends on what you're affiliated with and i don't quite know how you go about choosing or how a league chooses or whatever but little league leads you to this track that sends you to williamsport cal ripkin leads you to a league leads you to the cal ripkin world series which is in maryland where cal ripkin played it's not in Baltimore, but it's in it's in Maryland where Cal now lives and has a whole complex just like this Little League one, but it's just called the Ripken Baseball Experience. 
And so Cal Ripken leads you to the Cal Ripken World Series, and then Little League leads you to the Little League World Series. Cal Ripken teams and Little League teams could play each other for fun, but they would never play each other in an all-star setting. They would never play each other in the playoffs and root to any of these things. Little League would play Little League teams in the playoffs. Cal Ripken teams would play Cal Ripken teams. But when I was 10, I went to the Mid-Atlantic Regional. I mean, it was, you know, we lost. We actually lost our first two games here. But we played against we played against Northern New Jersey and Southern New Jersey and Delaware, another team from New York. I mean, it was so cool. First time going away to a hotel uh, for a baseball game, playing against all these other teams from all these other places. I went to the regionals. But I went to the regionals a lot. I was very, very fortunate in my life to play in a lot of meaningful youth baseball tournaments that led places. Um, 13 years old, we got to the state tournament. We got to the final and lost. 14 years old, we hosted the regionals, so we were automatically in it. 15 years old, I got to a regional in Maryland. 16 years old, we're now we're in a different set of leagues. It's not Little League anymore or uh, Babe Ruth or anything, so we're in something else, and we ended up in a regional. We played at Hofstra, which is down in Long Island. 17 years old, we got to a, uh, a big tournament as well. I played in a World Series once in Missouri at a different league. There's a lot of different leagues out there, Danny, especially as you get into 13 and up and you get out of Little League. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can go. Like there's Pony and there's Babe Ruth and there's something else. And I was in all of them at one point or another. So it was a uh, it was a lot of fun. But, yeah, Vermont, there you go. Could get to the Little League World Series. And I still recommend that people go to the Little League World Series if they ever have the chance. So. All right, text line's open, 802-585-3026. Red Sox got beat yesterday by the Houston Astros. Final score of that one was 9-4. to Danny, there was exactly one fun thing that happened in the game yesterday. Exactly one. In the first inning, right before Duvall came up and hit the three-run homer, Kevin Millar, who was doing the game on Nesson with Dave O'Brien, he predicted that Duvall would hit a home run. So Christian Javier's pitching. He said, hey, this guy's not a good matchup. For Javier, he throws this pitch, and it's going to break this way right into where Duvall swings. And then the next pitch, Duvall did this. It makes you want to go get a bat, OB, I'm telling you. What? Swing at a high fly ball, deep left field. What? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Oh, my, Kevin Millar, stick around. Red Sox lead it three to nothing. And Millar called it seconds before it happened. Yeah, that was the one cool thing that happened in the game. I'm actually not a huge fan of Millar on the games, usually. I like Millar as a personality. I think he's hilarious. I think he's great on his MLB Network stuff. I think he's great on podcast stuff. I was actually fine with him yesterday doing the game with O'Brien as a twosome, but usually they have him in there as a third person. And I think he kind of steps over the broadcast, whether it's Uke or Lou Merloni or whatever. So I'm not like a huge Millar on the broadcast guy. But yesterday when it was just the two of them, I thought he was great. I thought he was funny. I thought he was insightful. Makes me laugh. And he predicted that yesterday. So if you're looking for one silver lining out of the Red Sox game yesterday, it was that Millar has his prognostication powers. So there you go. Um and no, I will not be telling TC that, that I'm not a huge fan of uh, Millar on the Nesson broadcast all the time. I will keep that one to you, me, or me, Danny, and the listeners. So, a uh, couple things about the Red Sox today. They have placed Jaron Duran on the injured list. He got that toe injury that caused him to leave Sunday's game. He is going to head to the injured list. The team has called up one of their mid-level prospects, Willier Abreu, who they actually got from the Astros last year in the Christian Vasquez trade, the same one that brought them Ed Manuel Valdez. So, 
Abreu, by all accounts, people are excited to see him. I think he was ranked 17th. Uh, by MLB Pipeline as a Red Sox prospect. So we'll see what happens. We'll see how much he plays. I imagine he will play. Have not looked at the lineup yet today. But excited to see Abreu. But just a couple other things on this, on the Duran injury. One, I think the team gets worse, pretty obviously, without Jaron Duran being here. I don't think that's any great revelation. What Jaron Duran has done for this team when he has been good this year has been nothing short of remarkable. And I know he's slumped lately, and I know they've bumped him from the leadoff spot, and he's been hitting seventh or so. But by and large, I think Jaron Duran has had a really great year, and he's had a really great bounce-back year. I mean, last year, we're talking about Duran being a bust. We're talking about him being a failed prospect. We're talking about him not being a guy that High and Bloom can rely on. We're talking about him being a guy that you have to trade, and he can't play defense, and he can't hit. And this year, he's really answered a lot of questions. He's shown that he cares. He's shown his work ethic. His speed is undeniable, and the speed and power with which he runs has been really, truly, I mean, breathtaking to watch this year. Like, I've enjoyed watching Jaron Duran play, and that stretch that he was on, you know, for a month or so, and he was hitting everything, right? They went out to Oakland and then to Seattle, and Duran started in every game with a single that he turns into a double. And he had that play where he singled in Seattle and stole second. They threw it around, and he came around to the same play to score, and just like that, it was one nothing Red Sox, and the second batter of the game is still in the box and has seen, like, two pitches. Like, Duran, his speed is a game-changing speed. And I know he has struggled a bit, but, again, I think this team is clearly worse without him. So four back of the uh, final wild-card spot, four and a half back of the second wild-card spot, and now Duran's not here. So as you're trying to make up ground, you're out an instrumental player. That's never a good thing. There is one silver lining that I'm going to take from this. Again, I don't want Duran hurt. I don't want Duran on this team. But there's one silver lining in him not being here. It's that now the outfield log jam is in theory cleared up. Because I'm getting tired of seeing Masataka Yoshida not play every single game. Masataka Yoshida is this team's probably their best pure hitter. And because they've got so many guys they want to rotate into the outfield, they've sat Yoshida against lefties. I know they're playing musical chairs out here, right? They want to get Verdugo in. They want Yoshida in. They want Duvall in. But, oh, there's Ref Snyder. And, oh, there's Duran. And we're talking about five outfielders there. Well, now, with Duran gone, they still have five because they brought up Abreu. But i got to think Yoshida's going to be in the lineup more often, right? Like, Maybe you want to play Ref Snyder in the outfield, but Yoshida can DH because of turn, whatever's going on with Turner. You want to put Yoshida in left field, Ref Snyder in right, you want to give Verdugo a day off. I want to see Yoshida play more. This guy's your best pure hitter. It's not like he's hitting 110 against lefties. When I looked last week, I think he was hitting 281. So he hits lefties well. You paid him $18 million this year. You got him a five-year deal worth $90 million. I want to see the guy play. And I want to see him in the lineup. And now with Duran not there, the log jam is broken up a little bit. I know we'll see Abreu. We should see Abreu. I'm excited to see Abreu. But I want to see Yoshida in there more. I want to see Yoshida in there more. Uh, also, today, Tanner Houck is going to pitch. First time we've seen him in two months or so, right? He got hit in the face by that line drive against the Yankees the last time he was out there. Yeah, it feels like about two months ago. I'm just going to be curious to watch him today. 
And I imagine he'll be fine mentally, right? He's a major leaguer. These guys have different sensibilities than you or I do, different courage levels than you or I do in a lot of ways. He's made rehab appearances. I don't think that Tanner Houck will be nervous, but I just want to see him out there and and see if that's the case. I'm giving him the belief. I just want to see if that's the case because I would have to be nervous. I mean, we're talking about you're throwing the ball 94 miles an hour. They're hitting it back at you at 108, and it comes right off your face. That's a scary thing. Okay, If you got hit by a pitch, if you got hit in the head by a 96-mile-an-hour fastball, I think you'd be a little nervous and wary about getting back into the box. Well, if I got hit by a 105-mile-an-hour line drive off the face, I'd be a little nervous about being back on the mound. Again, he's thrown rehab outings. He's thrown bullpens. He's had a chance to acclimate himself. He's had a chance to get over his fears if he had any, but I certainly would have some. Um, I'm rooting for him tonight. The team needs a big performance out of him, right? The team needs these wins. We've, we've already established that. It's hard to, to demand a win of a guy who hasn't pitched in two months, who may have, you know, just may. It's possible that there's a mental block there in terms of getting back out on the rubber. It's hard to pitch like that, but it's hard to demand a lot from a guy in that situation. But I have to demand that. From the Red Sox, um, or from Hauk, rather. Speaking of mental stuff, I hope this injury to Jaron Duran, I hope he stays in a good mental state. Because Duran put out last week that he was in, kind of headed for a dark place, right? And we've heard him talk about his battles, his mental battles, or in the past, right? This is something he's been open about. This is something he's spoken about, about overcoming mental obstacles. I hope that with 10 days off, whatever it is on the injured list, I hope that he is not kind of left to his own thoughts and goes down a dark hole. Um, I don't want to speak too much about it because I'm not in his mind, and I don't want to make it more serious or less serious than it actually is. But this is a guy who told us last week that he was kind of struggling with some stuff, and now he's off the field, and you're just kind of left to your own thoughts. And I hope that as he's off the field, I hope he's able to reset and get positive rather than go the other way. So, Jaron Duran, we're all rooting for you. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. We did get our special guest. Jess Kazumi is going to be on the show next. I will tell you who she is and why we've been trying to track her down. I'll tell you next before she joins us on the Brady Farkas Show on DEV. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Jessica Zumi is going to join us here in about five minutes, and I'll tell you a little about her in a second. But about five years ago, um, I was hosting a show on a different network. A lot of you know that we're on a different station. And we had a radio consultant that would listen to our show and would give me feedback, and I would take it to the other guys on the show, and we'd kind of all talk about it together, and we'd all get better. And by and large, this consultant taught me a lot. I learned a lot from this radio consultant. I thought he made me a lot better, gave me a lot of tips, gave me a lot of um, a lot of advice. I bounced a lot of things off him. We talked about a lot of different things about the business, and I learned a ton. One of the things I've never forgotten that he taught me was that anytime you have an interview, 
it should be related to kind of the rest of the show. And he had gotten mad at me because that day we were talking a lot about baseball. It's the middle of summer. Talking a lot about baseball. I think we were talking NBA. And we had an interview with an NFL player that really didn't make any sense for the show. I was like, hey, it's an NFL player. This guy was a prominent NFL player. Any chance to get him? Like, I want to do it. So we had the interview. And the interview didn't go with anything else in the show. And this guy's like, hey, that interview was cool, but it made no sense because of what else you were talking about. So I've always, like, kept that in the back of my pocket, right? Like, if we're going to have a guest on, they should go with the rest of the show. Today we've talked a lot of Patriots. Today we've talked a lot of Red Sox. You know what? i got to break the rule. i got to break the rule today because this is somebody that I've wanted to talk to. No, it doesn't flow with the rest of what we talked about today, but I don't care. Sorry to Jason Barrett, our radio consultant from back in the day. i got to break your rule here because this interview is one I've been thinking about for a bit. A lot of you don't know this name, Jess Kazumi. It's a name you should know. Jess Kazumi spent the last six years, seven years, since 2017 as the associate head coach for the UVM women's hockey team. And the UVM women's hockey team that's gotten really, really good, right? Like we talk a lot about them in their appropriate season. Number one seed, number two seed in the conference tournament, player of the year uh, two years ago in Teresa Schaffsall, great goalie in Jesse McPherson. It's like the UVM women's hockey team has gotten really, really good. Well, part of the reason why is because of the work of Jess Kazumi. And Jess Kazumi was here again since 2017. She has been a coach previously to UVM at Yale, at Ohio State. She played in multiple um, women's professional leagues. She's played internationally. She's played international roller hockey in addition to ice hockey. She was born in Hawaii. Now, she moved from Hawaii, as I recall, kind of early in life, but still, like, she grew up in Hawaii at the beginning of her life and then became a hockey player that was a professional hockey player. I can't think of one hockey player ever from Hawaii, and now there's her, Jessica Zumi. She played in the Division in the Division One Women's Frozen Four, and she's been right under our nose at UVM for the last several years, and we have never spoken to her before on this show, and I'm angry at myself about that. Well, now I found out last week that she has left the UVM women's hockey program. And I don't know where she's going next, but I know that we have tracked her down in Hawaii right now. Jess Kazumi is in Hawaii, as I understand it, right now, working on some clinics, trying to grow the game. I think they've found one rink in where she is in Hawaii right now. And, Danny, yes, we do have Jess Kazumi with us now. And I know we're on a little bit of a time crunch, and we're working on a significant six-hour-plus time difference here so i know she's doing some other things at the rink as we speak but jess appreciate you being with us you're growing the game in hawaii very cool i know they're just continuing trying to grow the game and spark some interest and i'm hoping that through me being here more girls and women want to play and uh that's that's the hope that you know maybe one day one of these girls at least are gonna end up going to the mainland and then continuing to play hockey and maybe getting some different opportunities through that because I know I have owned everything to hockey with what I'm doing in my life. So it's an incredible sport, but not a lot, a lot of people know about this rink. I know for sure. You know, Jess, again, I appreciate you taking time with us. And again, I know we're on a, a several hour time difference. And I know you're working right now in the rink. Um, so let me just ask you again, you've been here since 2017 or you were here at UVM since 2017. Can I ask you what your, uh, what your next opportunities are like because you've gotten the program, you've been coaching for more than a decade, you've gotten this program, helped get it to a really good point. 
I imagine it's difficult to to leave a situation that's gotten as good as UVM has and to leave a profession you've put over a decade into. Can we ask what the next opportunities are? Yeah, uh, I actually ended up giving head coach Jim Plumer sort of a two-year notice instead of a two-week notice, and it all sort of happened during COVID season, and I think everyone can kind of attest to that moment that year being like a, a year to reflect and think about where you are in life. And I was able to spend about five months with my family in California. And throughout that time, you know, I really started to think about what I wanted to do as like a full, full-time career the rest of my life. And I didn't know if college coaching was, was where I wanted to, the direction I wanted to go. And so I started to, to really think about whatever other avenues I can, I can pursue. And I did want to stay in hockey, but I didn't exactly know what that would look like. Um, even thought about moving back home and those kinds of things. But throughout the, the last two years, um, some things had opened up for me. And even just pretty last minute, I ended up getting uh, a role with Elevate 02 in Essex, Vermont, working yeah. with Swaggy yeah. P and Money Mitch over there. And I'll start up in September 1 with them, which that will be pretty fun. So it, it's great that I have that balance to be able to still stay in the skill development side of the game and, and work with those two that have done an unbelievable job growing, growing their, um, their business. And then I'm also working with WCHR, which is women's college hockey recruiting, helping high school players get to college. And so that's been pretty rewarding. I have several clients right now, including a standout U18 player now, Taylor Senecal, that's from Essex, Vermont. So uh, it's been fun, you know, working on the other side of things now, Versus me being the one trying to recruit players to come to Vermont or to colleges, I'm helping players uh, trying to get to college. So it's been it's been fun kind of seeing that other side and seeing what players are thinking through this process. Because as coaches, we don't know what they're thinking and we're trying to know what they're thinking. But now I'm like, oh, okay, so that's like that's why you want this school. Okay, let's talk a little bit more and and try to figure out like other reasons why you want to go to this school. So. It's been, again, extremely rewarding, and I've also worked with Girls for Hockey this summer, so I started my own business to be able to do different things like this, and Girls for Hockey is, with Megan Sweezy, has done a really good job growing the the game at the grassroots level in Vermont, so I was able to do that too as well, so I'm working with all sorts of levels, um, ages, moms again, like that's, it's been super fun to be able to kind of give back to the game in a different regard. We're talking with Jessica Zumi here, former UVM women's associate hockey head coach, now moving on from the program, joining us all the way from Hawaii here on this Tuesday on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. You know, Jess, it took me – I've been here now for – this will be eight years here going on, eight years strong in Vermont for me. And it took me probably two years to talk about the UVM women's hockey program because the program just wasn't at a level, frankly, where it could be talked about constantly. But right now – it is, and we've seen this program grow from under 500 to 500 to a top two seed in the Hockey East playoffs. It really seems like it's at a spot where it can sustain itself and maybe be here for the long haul. Yeah, I just think we've had a very good staff and good players that have come in and helped reform the program and the culture, and uh, a lot of it happened transitionally through all the players, again, that have come in, but really through that COVID season, a lot of teams will say that that was a difficult year for them. And honestly, like even just talking with Coach Jim about this, Coach Alex, like that was a rebuilding, like huge year for us because we got to spend a lot of time with 
with the team and and do individual skill sessions and really get the most out of them and really help reform what we were looking for. And we had that class really came in and helped set the bar of, you know, how hard they need to work. They did extra sessions. They started to come out. So then some of the older players started to come out and then it just became a norm. And now when we get new players that come in, this is the culture. This is what's set. There's a standard and it's key. It keeps rebuilding off of that. And, and certainly the new locker room helps. All these things help with recruiting. And they're they're in a great spot. I'm excited to be a fan to bring my blanket and watch some of the games when, when I come to, when I come to the rink. Um so that's why I'm one of the reasons I'm excited about you know staying locally is to be able to cheer them on because I know they're in they're in a good spot. And you know, Alex just got promoted, really excited for him. He definitely deserves it. He's been part of the program almost my full six years that I've been there. He was there for five and and Jim Plumer's done a great job sort of being the leader and, and keeping us on track when things have, have sort of derailed a little bit. He's just always has this mindset of, you know, his motto is obstacle is the way. And he just does a really good job having that balance. And they just brought in Victoria Blake, which I've known for a pretty long time. And so I know she's going to do a really good job connecting with the girls and, and just like continuing the program's development. So, it is it is a fun game for for any of the fans in Vermont to come watch. Uh, I hope that they get more and more fans. I think one of the neatest things I've had as a coach, you know, just leaving the program is I'll I'll just wear some UVM swag like a hat or a shirt, and I'm at the grocery store, or the UPS store, and they're like talking about how good our program is and how much fun they had following us and and watching our games. And I just hope that you know one day it continues to grow to where there's there's a packed house like in every game and I think they deserve it. There's Olympians, there's national team players, there's local players. Now we, I think we have three Vermonters on the team next season. So hopefully it, it gets out a little bit more and it, it, there's a good product right now and there's no professional sport teams in Vermont. So this is, nope. this is the hot ticket in town, right? Is to come to the women's hockey game. I hope um, more people start to join. Yes. Let me ask you, this because I coached college baseball for two years and I've just been around college sports my whole life. And I've seen this story before where a team gets a great class and turns around and has some great success for a three, four year period. And then that class graduates and the team can't replicate the success because just those players have been gone or those players have left. But it seems like you feel confident that this program with the people it's brought in can replicate its success and can kind of do this in waves where you're able to repeat it over and over again. Yeah, I'm just very confident in in the the tactics that the staff has. And a lot of it comes down to how we play the game and how we develop the players. And, you know, so many players, you, you think about Teresa Shafsal, when she came as a freshman and what she looked like when she left, Sini as well. Like yeah. she yeah. ended up becoming an Olympian. And I love the girl to death, but like when she came in, it's hard to be like, okay, this girl, I can see her being defender of the year. I can see her doing all these things. And just the development, the mindset, the growth that that they provide um, and we provide it as a staff, I think, helps really continue to grow the program. So you have a couple good players. That's great. You you graduate them, but then you have to keep keep the machine oiled, keep it going. And a lot of that has to do with the development and the culture that's set. And so... I am very confident that they will continue on and um, looking forward to, like I said, being being a big fan and um, getting to watch the games and, and continue. I, I'm going to have a call with Jim, though, like once a week. And we're going to we're going to chit chat about 
my little judgment from when I watch the games. But um, but yeah, excited. I'm I'm just fortunate to to have uh, that staff, and you know, it was a very very much a family environment, and I was able to be fortunate, able to be a part of it. So we continue to be be pretty close too after I've left. Well, it's certainly great news for the program because we want to see the program continue to grow, continue to ascend. It certainly is uh, more than just on the upswing. Right now it is you know, thought of in a different light than it was uh, for the several years prior. It's a program that has really performed well, and part of the reason why is Jess Kazumi. And, Jess, we're glad to hear that you're going to be local working with the Elevate 02 guys. We love those guys. And now that I know you're going to be local, we're going to bring you on again here as we get uh, – back closer into hockey season appreciated and happy for you that you've kind of been able to get your your hands in several different different buckets of growing the game especially on the women's side just best of luck the rest of the summer have a good time out there in hawaii continuing to grow the game and we'll catch up down the road would love that appreciate that brady thank you for everything that you do for um basically providing marketing for our program and and just UVM in general and around the area. You've just done a really good job with that. And I've been been a big fan to follow. So thank you again for having me. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, very, very nice of you to say. That's Jessica Zumi, now former UVM associate women's hockey coach. And, again, I know it didn't – it wasn't related to anything we were talking about, Danny, but when someone's going to join us from Hawaii, and we were trying to make this work for a couple of days here, and she's like, look, I'm coaching – and it was understandable. I'm coaching at these clinics. We're on a six-hour time difference. You know, my show is on in the middle of the day on, on her side of things on the island right now. It was tough to get going. But when she's like, we can do it on Tuesday, we locked it in on Tuesday. I didn't care that we weren't talking hockey. So, again, sorry to the consultants of the world that are mad about it. But we had to get Jess on there. And uh, happy to hear, again, she'll be local and she can come and join us more uh, during the hockey season when we get there. And it's hard to believe we're only two months away from – you know, we're less than two months away from the college hockey season starting in terms of practice and getting out on the ice. Well, college basketball doesn't start until, uh, you know, regular season until early November. We're talking about early, early to mid-October here for, uh, for college hockey. So it's going to be not that long before we see the Catamounts back on the ice. And obviously it's a new look men's program without Todd Woodcroft, but a women's program that is humming and that Jess Kazumi thinks can continue to hum. And, you know, yeah, she's down in Hawaii. She is not in Maui. And, um, you know, Maui we know is where the devastating wildfires have happened. That is not where Jess was born. Jess was born in, in Honolulu, I believe. Um, let me verify that. But yeah, I believe Jess was born in Honolulu. Again, I think she left Hawaii when she was seven years old. Yeah, she's from Honolulu. And then went to Minnesota and then was in California. So uh, I think it's noble to give back, to give back to a main, to an area where you were born, but you weren't necessarily, you didn't necessarily grow up and try to grow the game there. So I think, yeah, I think it's a very noble thing. And again, this is someone who's really in, a, um, you know, at the forefront of kind of the women's pro hockey game, uh, playing in both the WWHL, the CWHL, the PHF, all the big college or the big women's hockey leagues Jessica Zumi has played in. She's brought a lot to UVM and I'm sure she's going to be a loss for the program as well. Um, all right, Red Sox baseball comes up tonight, 7-10. That's 30 minutes from now. We're going to close out the show with some thoughts on joint practices in the NFL. Matthew Slater of the Patriots had some interesting things to say about that. Then we get your Red Sox lineups. They get ready for round two against the Astros next on the Brady Farkas Show on DEV. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Danny, do you know that song? 
that return? Is this tub pumping? No, that is Niall Horan, one of these young, uh, I'm pretty sure he's British, and he was in one of those bands, One Direction or something. That song is catchy. I'm not usually like a boy band guy, especially the ones that are like the teen heartthrob boy bands. That song's catchy as hell. He's kind of broken out of the teen heartthrob thing. He's older now. He's in his, probably his late 20s. But I discovered that song during COVID. He was on, uh, I don't know, Jimmy Fallon or something like that. But that song, very, very catchy. So whoever made, yeah, very, very good. Um, um, someone on Facebook comments on the show, I love listening to his show in perspectives. I don't know if they're talking about me or if it's if that's a bot, but if if this person is real and they're really listening to the Brady Farkas show and they're not some robot commenting on the WDEV Facebook page, I appreciate you listening to our show. The text line is open, 802-585-3026. Interesting conversation going on right now about joint practices in the NFL. So, Danny, it's interesting. I don't remember exactly when this started. It feels like about seven, eight years ago, though. Um, well, when it started becoming the norm, I should say. But, like, when I was growing up, the preseason games, they didn't matter, right? They've never mattered in terms of results. But the preseason games were important because that's where everybody played and that's where everybody got their reps and that's where guys made a chance to get the team, you know, make the team and where, uh, you know, starters got a little bit of work. It's like the, the preseason games had a little bit of meaning to them. Well, now, over the last seven, eight years, I feel like ever since I've been in this business, the thing that has become the big thing was the joint practice, where the starters get their work in the joint practices, where it's a little more controlled, you're not likely to get hurt, and then kind of the backup guys, the rookies, the the on-the-bubble guys, they get a chance to play in the game. So that's kind of how the Patriots have looked at it. Well... We're starting to see and hear more complaints about the joint practices, right? Everybody used to love the joint practices because people weren't getting hurt. Good chance to get their work in. Starters still got to play starters. They didn't have to play the game. Now we're starting to hear more complaints about joint practices. And last week specifically, the Patriots were in Green Bay, and they had joint practices. Two days' worth were extremely chippy, right? Multiple fights broke out, and we're seeing all over the league fights break out as a result of joint practices. Well, Matthew Slater, Patriots captain and spokesperson, was on WEI in Boston yesterday, and he was asked kind of about the value of joint practices and had an interesting perspective. Look, I'm trying to be optimistic here. I I do understand that you get an opportunity to go and compete against uh, different athletes, different teams, different schemes, and there's value in that. But if you're honest with yourself and you look at what happens during these joint practices, you see a lot of fighting, which I don't think is good for anyone. And, you know, the the level of intensity, you know, it's not a game, but it, it's close to it. So uh, I think it's a double-edged sword, if we're honest. Every year we're talking about the fighting. My dad started a fight in joint practices against the Chargers when he was playing. So this is not a new thing. This is this has been going on for decades. Um, so, you know, we, we've got to find a way to do this more effectively and I don't know the answer to that. I think Matthew Slater is right. I told you yesterday when when Matthew Slater speaks, I listen. I think he's right. It has to be done more effectively. It has to be done more controlled. But I don't know a way for that to be the case. Like I don't know a way for that to happen. And what I mean is this, right? 
Joint practices are good. Everybody acknowledges that, I think, for what Matthew Slater just said. Different athletes, different schemes, different coaches, different coaching styles. You get out of playing your own team. It feels like, you know, build up towards the season. And if the guys aren't going to play in the preseason games, it's a good way for them to get work. So we can all see the benefits. But on the other side, I just think, like, I don't know how to calm down these practices from those aggressive settings. Anytime you have a violent game, Anytime you have an aggressive game, you are liable to see some bouts of aggression. You're liable to see some fights break out. And I saw today, Danny, Christian Fourier, WEI, saying, you know, this is ridiculous. Guys got to learn how to practice properly, and guys got to take care of each other. And, hey, like, if I beat you on a rep, just go down or just let me go. Let's not try to hurt anybody. That may work. When you're a six and seven year veteran and your spot is safe, that may work when you're making eight, ten million dollars a year and your spot is safe. But if you are a guy on special teams who's trying to show something, trying to make a roster, I can't tell that guy to go softer. So here's what happens, right? We see some rookie who was drafted in the seventh round going full speed, you know, blocking some seven year veteran who doesn't take kindly to it, and now we've got a fight. Well, I get it, seven-year veteran doesn't need that, but the seventh-round rookie does. He needs to go as hard as he can to try to impress somebody, to try to make a roster. That's just how it is for that guy. You have a rookie that is trying to make a roster. You have a guy that's trying to move up a depth chart. Okay, like Think about it like this. I think this is something we could all relate to, right? Like, If I was a senior in high school, right, if you're a senior in high school, and it's open gym, okay, and the varsity coach is watching, and a bunch of seniors are just kind of going through the motions, right? Like, they're there, the coach knows them, they don't have to impress them, they were on the team last year, they scored 10 points a game last year, they know they're on the team this year, it's summer, they don't have to go as hard. Well, then there's the 10th grader that's trying to to get on the coach's radar, saying, look, man, I want to make the team as a sophomore. I want to be on the team, the varsity team as a sophomore, or I want to start as a sophomore. That guy's not going easy. Okay, that guy's trying to impress somebody. And I think that's where we find our situations here in the NFL, in these practice situations. These guys are like, look, this is my chance to get noticed. And I don't think they're out there trying to start fights, but I think aggressive guys are out there. Hey, the coach is just telling us, hey, we got to be aggressive, we got to be physical. I'm going to go out and be aggressive, and I'm going to be physical today. And then when you do that and somebody doesn't take kindly to it, it leads to something else. Or you have a guy that's like, look, man, this is my shot. This is my one chance to make an NFL roster. I'm not going to go 50% just because that guy wants to go 50%. And I think when you have that, you run into situations where not everybody's going to be on board with it. But back to Slater's original point, I don't know how you fix it. You have an aggressive game. You have guys playing at different levels, different levels of aggression with different motivations. Some guys are trying to make a rosters, and some guys are out there trying to just not get hurt. And it is difficult to try to, uh, you know, try to get everybody on the same page. So it, it is tough. But about eight years ago, the switch was made. The joint practices were the ish, and the games stunk. And now it seems like people are going the other way, where well, maybe we just play the games and the practices don't mean anything. We don't get anything out of them anymore. I think you do get something out of them. They do have to be more controlled. But it's hard to control things when guys are playing for their lives. And that is what happens over the course of a training camp, right? Guys are playing for their lives. Guys are playing for their football lives 
in some cases. It is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Hey, Danny, this was interesting, by the way. Maybe we'll do more of this tomorrow. I think we'd have some fun with it, but a little tease here. Saw a story in WCAX today. It's actually out of Plattsburgh, where the residents of Plattsburgh are taking a poll on like a write-in poll on what restaurant or what establishment they want to see come to Plattsburgh. And the two leading candidates are Olive Garden and Trader Joe's. So, like, we have Olive Garden and Trader Joe's in Vermont, right? We've got the Trader Joe's over there on uh, Dorset Street in South Burlington, and then we've got the Olive Garden over on Shelburne Road on Shelburne. Um, so that's what they want to get in Plattsburgh. Danny, if I could ask you one food place that you want that we don't have, what would it be? Chick-fil-A. See, they have that in Plattsburgh. They do, but not close enough to us. No, not close enough. Uh, look, Chick-fil-A to me, I'm not going to say it's overrated. I don't want to be that guy. I just haven't had enough to be attached to it. Like, I've been there. It's fine, but it's not something that I necessarily need. I would be fine without a Chick-fil-A. Did I tell you that they brought, they put a Chick-fil-A in my parents' town to just open the other day, and people were there at, at uh, midnight the night before waiting for it to open at 6 a.m.? There were people, there was families camping out at midnight for it. And you weren't there? Not, no, I was here. I mean, I couldn't be, I, and I wouldn't have done it anyways, but uh, of course I want Taco Bell, although we have Taco Bell in the state, but I want a Taco Bell immediately next to me at all times, and uh, I want an Arby's. If you're asking me what I want in Vermont that we don't have at all, it's an Arby's. State of Vermont does not have one Arby's. I'm told there used to be one in, I want to say it was Shelburne Road. It might have been downtown Burlington. I can't remember. But Arby's is the thing that I want that we don't have. I mean, I need a beef and cheddar in the worst way. The closest Arby's is in Albany, which is shocking to me. So when I go home to my parents' house, I do get Arby's. Not every time I go home, but I do get Arby's because uh, there used to be an Arby's in my mall. Like, I know malls have kind of fallen out of style. But the mall where I grew up used to be halfway decent, and there was a Taco Bell and an Arby's inside the food court, and that was the best. I never realized how good I had it from a fast food perspective because now I've been so deprived of Taco Bell and Arby's that I haven't been able to get them in years practically, at least with any kind of regularity. So I would vote for Taco Bell to be close to me at all times, and I would vote for an Arby's to enter the state of Vermont. So that is what I would want if I was doing it. Well, maybe I'll take your answers on that tomorrow because I think we could have some fun with it, but, yes, so. There you go. Oh, Brady, you only get, we only want local things. By the, yes, I know, we like local things. I like local things, too. But you know what? Local f- people can own the, these uh, fast food places. There's nothing wrong with supporting them as well. Danny, Red Sox music, please. Red Sox 66 and 59, four games back at the AL wild card. The Astros 71 and 55. They're a half game up on Seattle for the second wild card spot. Tanner Houck back on the mound for the Red Sox, three and six with a 505. Justin Verlander eight and six with a 336 for Houston. Alex Verdugo leads off in right. Rafi Devers is in third. Justin Turner is the DH tonight. Masataka Yoshida is in left. Adam Duvall in the lineup in center. Tristan Casas is at first. Trevor Story all the way down. It's seventh. He's hitting 186. Luis Arias is at second, and Connor Wong is the catcher. Jose Altuve leads off at second. Alex Bregman at third for Houston. Kyle Tucker in right. Yanier Diaz is the DH. That means no Jordan Alvarez. That is a gift. Chaz McCormick is in left. Mauricio Dubon is in center. John Singleton at first. Jeremy Pena is the shortstop, and Martin Maldonado is the catcher, and he bats ninth. I want to thank Jessica Zumi for stopping by the show. You can go download the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
and at WDEVradio.com. Same for the full show podcast. We'll have Tom Karen of Nesson on the show tomorrow. We'll hear from Freddie Coleman as well. Go Sox. See you tomorrow.